Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is an actor and writer best known for his breakout role of Ethan in the Fox 2000 movie Love, Simon, as well as the reoccurring role of AJ on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He's currently the host of his own podcast called Soul Bomb, a show that focuses on healing and identity. Clark Moore, welcome to the show. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I'm glad we finally get to chat (laughs) <laughs> I know. We, I love a long form conversation and what better way to do it than in front of an audience. Absolutely. So I know <laughs> that you grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've actually never been to Atlanta. It's, it's definitely on my list of places to go. And, you know, Georgia has been in the news a lot over the past year, as we've seen <laughs> when it comes to, to politics. But in terms of like culture and environment, how did growing up in Atlanta kind of shape your view of the world, but more specifically this country? country and then were those views altered in any way when you moved out west into what would people would consider a more liberal area I think with Atlanta I mean you you definitely have to go first of all oh, what's sure. weird about what's weird about it is like when you go especially if you're not from there everyone who arrives tells me they're shocked by how many black people there are and it never they're never saying it in like a negative way it's just like there are very few places in the world certainly major cities where you touch down and you're seeing like one for one black people and white people and you know like maybe dc there are other like southern cities or whatever but like new york everybody's there yeah. la it it feels much more like I, I notice more of like a Pacific Islander lean or like um, Hispanic lean, you know, in Atlanta though, like the conversation about race that I grew up with was black and white. Mm. And part of that is because of the population. Part of that is because it's like basically 50% black. Um, and part of that is because that's the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Yeah. You know, the Atlanta university center, a lot of the student, um, like slick and a lot of the, um, student, organizations that were like at the forefront of the civil rights movement were founded and headquartered there. Um, Martin Luther King lived there for a long time. Coretta lived there for a long time. His descendants still live there. My mom went to college with Martin Luther King the third, you know, like so much history, just sort of, and it's right there. It's palpable. It's in the signs of the streets. It's all around you. And so, but it's also like juxtaposed against the brutal racism of the South. Yeah. And so I think for me growing up there, the way that it shaped my view of the world was that it made things like no pun intended, very black and white, Mm. you know, it was very like the lines were drawn. I can spot racism a mile away and coming out West, you know, the thing is that a lot of people think because it's not the South, it's not racist or the same with the North because it's not, you know, brutal lynchings and people being shot in the street for being black. Um, Although LOL, those things happen there too. But like, because it's not in your face, they think like, Oh, well, California isn't racist. Los Angeles isn't racist. And I'm like, well, my racism <laughs> radar is finely tuned. Right. So I can tell that uh, it's not a coincidence. Yeah, and that's why I prefaced it by saying some would think a more liberal area. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that you, um, this hostess has seated 10 white parties without reservations before they seated us. And then when they finally do, they seat us in the back, you know, like that happens to me all the time yeah. in Los Angeles. Um, and people just, you know, they think it doesn't exist here. So it definitely made me keenly aware of all of the different types of racism that, um, that we experience on a daily basis. I think what we suffer from specifically in California, because it is mainly a blue state, most elections, at least in my lifetime, it's always been a blue state. And I think we suffer from this thought process that if you are more liberal leaning, that you are somehow absolved of those views. But people don't realize how much implicit bias they actually have, when, especially when it comes to mm. people of color. It doesn't matter how liberal you are. I mean, even people of color have those implicit biases, specifically yes. with the Black community. So I, I, I do laugh when I see, I hate to say this, but some people's true colors come out, especially if they're more liberal leaning. <laughs> and I definitely feel like I saw that a lot in the last year, you know? Mm-hmm. The, all those conversations mm-hmm. that we were having, I was like, oh, wait, what you're saying this like but you you lean this way you know it's it's very mm-hmm. eye opening but yes there are definitely super red pockets in california i've realized i didn't realize how many there were actually but there's a lot so of I, them i just went to big bear a couple of months ago i shot an indie in um uh, sort of like at this campsite in big bear for 2 weeks and we were staying in sugarloaf which is like a town next to Big Bear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I've am i never been up there. I've been to Mammoth. I've been to Tahoe. So I was thinking, like, it's a ski town. It's a California ski town, right? I was thinking bougie. I was thinking, you yeah. know, Capri ski. And I got there, and it's much more, like, industrial, like, rural, you know, very backwoods, very Trumpy. And a friend of mine, before I even went up there, I was, like, getting ready to have my eat, pray, love, you know, Diane Keaton <laughs> moment in the wilderness. And I got there, and it was, like, much more of a horror film oh. than a rom-com. <laughs> um, and and I think, you know, part of that, though, was also, and this is, like, the, the moment of the that we're in part of it was like projection Mm. you know I didn't Mm -hmm. have too many experiences I did have a weird interaction with the guy at um, the cashier who was like very friendly with the old white people ahead of me at the Vons and then when I came up he didn't say a single Mm -hmm. word to me the whole time that we were checking out and I was like I don't know you know I am also the kind of person that likes to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he knows these old white people. Maybe he just wasn't feeling like chatting with me. I don't know. Um, But like knowing that going into it and being aware of that. And then also like seeing the pickup trucks and like seeing the people stare at me when I was walking my dog down the street, it just made me very like aware, you know, and nervous. You know, as you're saying that, it makes me think just about what black people in general have to do on a regular basis in terms of navigating certain spaces, but also reading other people and then having to figure out, okay, what do I have to change about my demeanor, my language code switch? Like, what do I have to do in this situation to make this person feel comfortable? And I don't Mm -hmm. think that society as a whole truly realizes the amount of mental gymnastics we as a community have to go through just to live on a daily basis. Right. I think the people who have to, I think of it as a muscle, you know, and I think like for anyone who has to work a muscle either by choice or, you know, in this case, like reading books, taking African-American studies classes or whatever, or by virtue of like living in a black body, 
any of those people know it, they realize it, they see it, they experience it. Um, And if you don't have to work that muscle, it just isn't a muscle you have. And I, I think this is the same for, for all types of marginalized experiences, you know, like for women, there are muscles that you work regularly that I don't. And growing up, I, I frequently was like, I don't think that's sexist, you know? And like pushing back on someone who's like, <sighs> like, you don't think it's sexist. Yeah. I know it's sexist. Right. Like, and having to have that conversation now where it's like, I don't engage with that anymore. I'm not going to convince you, white person, that this is, you know, this isn't a debate. This is not my job to teach you or to explain it to you in a way that makes you feel like, oh, I guess you're right. You know, you are not the arbiter of whether something is racist or not just because you are in the position of power. In fact, I would say the opposite. Because you don't have this muscle developed, maybe you sit back and you let someone who has developed that muscle point it out to you. This is a deficit. But of course, for all of us, we're, you know, whenever we're in the center, and, and this isn't just white people, that's sort of, sort of why I'm saying it's like we all have elements of privilege in our lives sure. and we all have places where we're centered. Uh, and it can be hard to take ourselves out of that. I, I feel that with, um, with disability and with ableism, you know, where I like find myself pushing back and I'm like, well, is that ableist? And like, let me determine whether it is or not. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, wait, this isn't my thing to determine. I'm not in the center of this conversation. Yes. But that's a hard thing to do. Decentering yourself is like Absolutely. anathema to our existence. Absolutely. And then I've also noticed there are attempts made to try and, and connect like, oh yeah, this also happened to me. It's like, no, it's not even close to, me <laughs> to what the situation is that I'm talking about. No, 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 no. Don't make that comparison. Have you ever had that right. situation? Constantly. It's, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So in your circles, how have these conversations been? Because I know I still have friends that are very uncomfortable with having these conversations, even though they are trying, but it is taking mm-hmm. them a longer time than I would have hoped to kind of step their foot into this pool of having these uncomfortable conversations specifically surrounding race. Right. I mean, I think it varies depending on like the willingness or the openness of the other person. And, you know, by virtue of them being friends with me, excuse me, being friends with me, a gay black person for however many years it's been or whatever, they've already been like, Primed, You know, they see us interacting differently in the world. I walk into, um, I walked into a grocery store with a friend recently and he was like, why is everyone, it was Air One, like a bougie LA grocery store. And he's white, he's gay. And he goes there all the time because he lives in Venice. It's like his local store. And he was like, why is everyone staring at you? And I was like, because I'm black and in Air One. Like, what do you mean? Why are they staring at? He's like, no one ever stares at me when I walk in here. I'm gay. They don't stare at me. And I'm like, yeah, but my body exists in the world in a different way than yours does. Yeah. And because he sees me experience that it's, you know, he's also a kind of person who does the work, does the, you know, he's doing his own thing. But I think with all of these experiences, there's, it's one thing to intellectualize it or to understand it because you read a book about it. It's a completely different thing to see it or to experience it, you know? And, um, I was just having this conversation with a friend yesterday who is French and he watched season two of Lupin on Netflix, which so good. I love that actor. I love that actor. He's incredible. He moved here. He lives in LA now. 
Yes. We have to go find Yes, him. we should. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first thing I saw um, him in was The Untouchables. Yes. yes he's uh-huh. fantastic. I was trying to remember the name of that movie the other day. Yeah. That's it. So good. So he was talking about season two of Lupin, and there's this scene where um, Omar Sy goes down to, like, uh, a He's outside of Paris. It's maybe an hour or two outside of Paris. Smaller town. He goes into a bar, and everyone there is, like, very overtly racist. And it's, like, racist in a cheesy, kind of, like, heavy-handed way, admittedly. But he was like, it's just really hard. He's white. And he was like, it's really hard for me to imagine that it would be like that today. Mm. Like, I know that racism exists in France, and I know that these people, you know, have varying exposure to people of color or to black people. It's just hard for me to imagine in 2021 that it would be that kind of overt racism. But I will say to answer your question, the shift that I noticed in the way he said that, I think maybe six months ago, a year ago, he would have just said it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That's not real. It doesn't exist. The way he said it yesterday though, which I thought was so interesting was he said, it's hard for me to imagine that that exists in that way, and I've never experienced it, but because I am not the object of that or the subject of that, I realize that I don't know. Mm. He was like, it's hard for me to believe it, but I also know that I'm not the person to experience it, so maybe it does happen. Right. And I thought that alone was a monumental shift in terms of the way that I've been having conversations with my white friends in my entire life. Because 10, 15 years ago, so much of it was me trying to like explain to liberal white people that they don't know everything. And also you probably being gaslit. Yes. Oh my God. It was so much (laughs) gaslighting. Yes, of course. And I didn't have that term at the time growing up, but I was like, I know what I know to be true. And I don't understand how like you, like obviously our perspectives on the world are going to be different, but like, how do you not have empathy for the fact that maybe you don't understand this experience. Yeah. So I would say that is a big shift. That and is. I'm seeing that in a lot of, a lot of my friends. There's a lately. lot of growth there. I think just, you know, bringing up gaslighting, I think that's been the biggest shift for me that I've seen is that people aren't validating my experience and what I share anymore. Mm-hmm. But so often mm-hmm. I would get the, no, like you're just being too sensitive or you're being paranoid. No, it wasn't that. It's like exactly what you said. I know what is happening, but we didn't have that terminology back in the day. So I'm so glad that we do. Cause I was like, there has to be a word for this because it keeps happening and it's driving me crazy. I know someone finally made it up. Thank, yes, thank God, because we needed it. But that, I feel like that kind of encapsulates what the Black experience is in America, is just constantly being gaslit. Mm-hmm. And it's beyond yeah. frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> from the beginning, I mean, from the, you know, from like the articles of uh, independence, you know, like all of the, all of the conversations about slavery and three-fifths of a person and, you know, black people actually being in the Senate and then still being told like, no, but you're less than, yeah. or no, but you know, this whole, this whole experience has been exactly that. Like, um, uh, even, you know, this new, something that I've been thinking about lately, I don't like to think about the, ter- the term minority. I don't like to use that term anymore because, um, because again, it centers white people in that sort of, in my identity, Mm -hmm. like my identity is that I am in a smaller group than you. What? Um, But also the fact that there's this new term I've, I've seen online um, called global majority, Mm. which 
recognizes the fact that while we might be in a marginalized group in this country or in Europe, Eurocentric countries, we actually are a member of a global majority. There are more people who look like us in the world than people who are white, people who you know are non-black, non-brown. Um, and I just that recentering of like seeing myself not as less than within the context of this you know space, but rather as a part of a much larger collective in the context of the whole world. Yeah is really empowering and um, has been a sh- an internal shift for me recently. I think that's beautiful. I haven't seen that phrase yet, but I love that. Whoever coined that, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had a source for it. I first saw it on the Instagram of Kwame Kwe Arma, who is one of, I think he's the artistic director of the Young Vic Theater in the UK. I think it's a, a British phrase maybe, or like a, a term that, surprise, we haven't started using here in America yet. Yeah. Um, but It just, like, acknowledges, you know, this larger connection, connectedness of the diaspora of sort of, like, how we got to where we are today as black people, um, as displaced black people. And, um, yeah, that, I think these shifts are having to happen both externally, you know, in my friend groups in order for me to stay friends with these people. But it's also (laughs) me having to change the way I see myself in the world. Absolutely. I want to backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about your acting career. Mm. When you were in Atlanta, were you exposed to the arts and that's kind of what set you on this path? Or was acting something that fell into your lap later on? It's, it happened right away. So I was, um, I mean, I have always been drawn to performance and I, you know, my, like my kindergarten was doing plays and my mom was like, I was always, I was always trying to be the star of the kindergarten play, you know, (laughs) like we were doing a nursery rhyme and I had to be the lead. Um, And then when I was seven, my cousin who is now a producer in New York she was at the time she was like 15 she was a counselor at this performing arts camp and my parents wanted to get rid of me for a week because I was a lot as a child (laughs) so I went away to sleepaway camp at seven if you can imagine and I I loved it I fell in love with like improv and mime and juggling and it was like you know one of those one of those things that you look back on summer and remember for summer camp, they would send you like your packing list yes, and you have to bring like two tennis shoes and shorts and swim trunks. And most of the camps that I went to were always like, you know, hiking shoes or tennis shoes, formal shoes for a dance for a performing arts camp though. It was like scarves and hacky sacks or juggling balls, bowling pins to juggle or like masks, um, you know, various costumes, hats, you know, like <laughs> those were the things on the packing list. And I was just like, oh my God, these, these are my people. Um, and so I actually started right away. I got, they, they also had this cool thing where you could do, it was called monologue night and it was Thursday nights. You would do a monologue. You had the full week to prepare with, um, with counselors and with the teachers. And then they would bring in agents, managers, casting directors, directors, um, and they would sit in the audience and you would, perform your monologue and then at the end you would go around and you would like have conversations with all these people and I got a manager from it I got an agent from it so my parents sent me away to summer camp and I came back literally with an agent (laughs) (laughs) 
And like within a couple of weeks, I was auditioning for like major studio films and being driven around, you know, the whole Southeast by my mother for callbacks. And it was tough because there weren't a lot of roles for young black kids in general. Mm -hmm. And I was already pretty queer presenting at the time. And so there certainly weren't roles for like queer black kids in 99, you know, whenever that was. Um, And so it was slow going, but every now and then I would get a commercial or I would get like a print ad or an episode of a television show and then Tyler Perry came into town and I would do Tyler Perry things. So it's always been, I got bit by the bug at seven and I've just been doing it ever since. Oh, I love that. And you know, just you speaking that there weren't a lot of roles that you could relate to or fall into, you know, we know that there's been a lot of commentary specifically from conservatives about their, this agenda that's being pushed in terms of diversity and inclusion, but even more specifically in terms of representation with the LGBTQ community. And for me, that that entire mindset has always been really frustrating to try and understand and have a conversation with because the whole point of representation is so that everybody sees themselves, right? Yeah. And we know, you know, as people that work in the entertainment industry, that whiteness as a whole, but, but mostly cisgender whiteness as a whole has been the focal point for nearly every story that you see. But what do you think that the push for more diversity inclusion now is going to do for this upcoming generation? that is watching Mm. television and watching media and seeing more people that are like them. Because from my vantage point, I feel like the reason you have, at least in the LGBT community, and and of course I'm not a member of that community, but from my friends and these stories that they tell me that had they have someone that was like them, it would have made their coming out easier. It would have made them feel less alienated, less ostracized. So just from your vantage point, how important do you think that diversity inclusion now is for this generation? Well, I would say, first of all, I mean, you know, the, Part of this is why I started by talking about part of, like decentering other people from the narrative because part of the whole conversation about an agenda and having to like make people comfortable with our agenda requires us to first look at them as the center. Okay, well, in order for us to get anything done, we have to get them excited about it. Yeah. We have to make them feel comfortable about it, right? And it's like, I don't really give a shit what they think about our agenda, you know? Right. Like, at the end of the day, it's it's the same kind of conversations that we used to have about affirmative action, mm. too. Because the thing, the, the fundamental, and it's funny now with all these television shows being put on streaming, and you, like, look back at, like, a 90s show or a 2000s show, and you start to see, like, bubbling up whatever was in the social commentary of the time. And the fundamental mistake or like lack of understanding or just like, you know, they just didn't want to believe it or chose not to with regard to affirmative action is that they didn't see that there was a problem that needed to be fixed. The reason why affirmative action had to exist was because without it, we got where we were without someone actively creating opportunity for people of color in higher education. We had very low enrollment rates. We had very low admission rates. Like the data is clear. And so the, 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 it's so funny. You see these people talking about affirmative action and they're like, they aren't even talking about the thing they're talking about, like around the thing. Well, should they have more opportunities? Should they, is that fair? Like whatever. And it's like, wait, you're not even accepting the the first issue, which is that 
passively, we got to a point where we need something to remedy this. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the agenda, you know, of course there's an agenda. Without an agenda, there are no queer people on television. Without an agenda, there are no black people in lead roles. If we are not actively working against the systems of white supremacy, they happen passively all around us. This is sort of, this is the point. And I think that is, you know, you are never going to convince a white supremacist that white supremacy is a problem Mm. because white supremacy benefits them. Why would I change something that benefits me? So I'm not particularly, I don't really care if they don't want to watch my television show with queer black people in the center, turn the channel, honey, there are 500 shows on TV. You can find something for you. Okay. That is the beauty of this time is that there is space for everyone and if you don't want to engage with that narrative, then you don't have to. I think, though, speaking to like what it would have done to have queer people on screen, I felt so invisible oh. as a child. I felt so alone. And I had parents who were, you know, fine and liberal leaning. And, you know, there are queer people in my family as well. And But we're just very waspy. We're very, like... Protestant, repressed. We don't talk about sex of any kind. You know, like I had a lesbian aunt and we didn't really, we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about her poorly. We didn't talk about her positively. Like, I mean, we talked about her life positively, but we didn't talk about that. That was never brought up. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't really like, it was just sort of like glazed over. And so because of that, and because there were no people mimicking my experience or showing me sort of like versions of what my experience could look like on television, I was like, again, being gaslit by the straight people all around me. I was like, God, I know this isn't it. Right. I know like this two and a half kids in the white picket fence dream that you're trying to push on me. I know it's not making you happy and I know it's not going to make me happy. So like I need to find, thank God I found Will and Grace because I was like, I know I'm not crazy. Right. Yeah. Y'all are the crazy ones. Y'all are the pod people in suburbia. Not the pod people. (laughs) (laughs) Not the pod people. But it's so funny. Yeah. I I completely agree with how you explained that. Yes, there is an agenda. But the other thing is, you know, when you talk about white privilege, for example, they're indirectly admitting that they have it by saying, like, we're getting pushed out. Like, do you not Mm -hmm. know what you are saying when you say that? (laughs) You're admitting Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. are centered. You're admitting that you've been at the forefront of everything because you are saying now you feel othered. But then it doesn't click for them. It never has. It doesn't. And that comes back to that thing about fundamentally, like, asking them for permission to be equal, Mm. asking them to grant us the validation that we deserve to have more, as opposed to working within systems if we have to, doing whatever we have to. I mean, we're now fortunately at a point where we've had decades of women rising to the top of their field, people of color rising to the top of their field. You know, that's why it's so slow going, because at the end of the day, we need all kinds of people in decision-making roles in order for all kinds of people to be represented and to be, it's just the way human nature works. We are, we gravitate towards people in the same way why representation matters and and we want to see ourselves on screen. We gravitate towards people who have, you know, similar experiences. We, there's just something about them. I don't know, you know, like that, that sort of je ne sais quoi that you get when you meet someone and you're like, we're just kindred, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
And so surprise, if all of the people in decision-making roles look the same, then the people who they just naturally gravitate towards are probably going to look like them unless they're actively making a decision to do something other, other than that, to make a different, you know, choice. You brought up, you know, shows like in the nineties and early two thousands. And I want to get your opinion on this because I know a lot of people like to bring up old content that would not necessarily fly in 2021. And I know we've talked about friends before and I actually, I wasn't a faithful friends watcher. I didn't see a single episode of friends until 2016. Um, Ooh, okay. I know I, it was late <laughs> in the game and I watched it and I laughed. I did. I enjoyed it. Um, I, there were some great moments, but definitely even at that time watching it, there were moments when I was like, Ooh, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had those moments, but do you think that we should be focusing on old content or should we be putting our energy, just making sure that we're not doing that again? Because I do think that there's a benefit of the reason I asked this, let me, let me preface this. There was an NPR debate with between two women mm. that were talking about whether or not friends should be allowed to be streamed. I don't know if you heard, did you hear this debate mm. at all? I did. it. Yeah. I'd and it was, there that. was a debate about whether or not it should be streamed because of the problematic content that is within the show, right. which there's problematic content with almost every episode of that show. (laughs) Like, let's just be Mm -hmm. honest, right? And I personally don't agree with removing it for people's consumption because I do think it was a pop culture phenomenon. I think people have ties to it. I think that we just need to look at it and say, okay, we got to make sure in 2021 and beyond, we just don't repeat that again. I think I fall probably similarly in the same space that you're in because I, I mean, fundamentally when we talk about art we're reflecting the time yeah you know we're reflecting the social commentary that we're having at the moment you know um it's the same thing with sex in the city mm-hmm. you know anytime you're like reflecting conversations that people are having in their personal lives on television it's not going to age well <clears throat> there are things that like we look back on now and we're like, okay, we still sort of agree with that or like, oh, that was sort of right on the money. But fast forward 20, 30, 50 years from now, there will be plenty of things that we're talking about today. There are plenty of things that I'm saying, I'm sure that in yeah. a few decades, people are going to be like, actually, no, we no longer believe that. We no longer agree with that. And not only do I think that's fine, I think that is part of the process. Yeah. I think part mm-hmm. of cultural growth and evolution is that we build on what comes before us. And so <clears throat> we can look back on things and we can condemn people, certainly people who knew what they were doing was wrong at the time. You know, like we look back on, we've. I keep going back to the founding of the country for some yeah. reason. I don't know. I'm in like a revolutionary <laughs> space today. Um, but we we can look back on that time and be like the people who were engaging in slavery at the time knew what they were doing was wrong. And many of them, not only because like, you know, I think a lot of the conversation growing up was like, well, it was cultural. It was what, and also I'm from the South. So like keep that with a grain of salt, but like, (laughs) you know, it was, they didn't know what they were doing was bad or like everyone was doing it. So it wasn't like, you know, of course now we know slavery was bad, but we didn't know then fast forward. Now we've had enough scholarship to realize like, no, that people were actively, actively debating slavery during the time. There were plenty of people who were white and in positions of power who knew it was wrong and who were not engaging with it. And who were, and that's like, the whole point of the civil war right is like half the people were like 
there is something problematic here. 100%. Well, there's people that still think that slavery wasn't a bad thing. I don't know if you saw that Chelsea Handler right. <laughs> Netflix. I have seen that and I know those people. Yeah. I just, I, my mind was blown. Like they were, the slaves weren't treated. They were like big mama. They were like a part of the family. They believe this. They do. And I know plenty of people who like either believed that growing up or who have family members who believe that. Um, And, you know, part of that is like making peace with a traumatic and dark history in their personal lineage. And and a lot of it is just um, delusion (laughs) and like an unwillingness to to accept that reality. But I think. Ultimately, when we're talking about friends, especially, it's important to have examples of what not to do, as well as, like, I I do not believe in censorship, like, full stop. You know, I think that it definitely needs to be seen through a lens of this is problematic because, or these are the issues that, you know, when we were talking about the Friends reunion, that was what was frustrating to me about that reunion was there like unwillingness to acknowledge the fact that there were no black people in their show set in New York city in the nineties. Like, <laughs> like in what world? <laughs> literally I call friends, my favorite science fiction show for that very reason, because it's like, it could not be in this universe. There's no <laughs> world in which that exists in this world. Oh my gosh. Um, and it was not the fact that there weren't black people on the show in a substantial way because we had Aisha Tyler, we had Gabrielle mm-hmm. Union. It was the fact that one, neither of them were involved in the reunion, which I thought was uh, conspicuous. And two, that they didn't acknowledge it at all yeah. in the talking head element. They didn't, you know, they said they saw everyone for all of these roles. And being an actor myself and going out for roles like this, I'm like, did you right. see everyone? Right. And if you did see everyone, if you really did see tons of people of color, as they have mentioned in other interviews, the fact that you chose all white people is even worse. Like, it's one thing if you're like, this is a group of white friends and that's just what it is because it's based on our experience. And so we're only going to see white people for it. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been having this conversation a lot in regards to White Lotus. <laughs> have you watched no. The White Lotus? No. It's good. You should watch it. Um, But, you know, ultimately it's a show about white people. Mm -hmm. And the conversation I was just having last night was like, it's one thing when a show is about white people and the show knows that it's about white people, like Succession. Yeah. Like Big Little Lies. You know, that's what it's about. It's about white nonsense. Okay. So it's another thing when the show is also supposed to be like woke or like the point of the show is that there's supposed to be some kind of like social commentary and the white Lotus, this is, you know, there's a lot of, I'll direct people to Richard Lawson's um, review of it on vanity fair. There's lots of people who are like TV critics who are talking about this as well. I'm not just like going insane in my bedroom alone at night. (laughs) Um, But there's this frustration that I have where like there people are able, especially white people right now, are able to capitalize on their virtue signaling or their wokeness or their awareness of the problem. And then in the end, they still make a show that is a majority white cast, a majority straight cast. The you know, the storylines for the people of color on that show, specifically White Lotus, are not interesting or in depth. Mm-hmm. They don't go anywhere. And some people argue that's the point. 
and you're like, okay, well then if that's the point, then this audience, I'm not the audience for this. This is obviously meant for like a white audience. Cause I don't need to see a black woman get humiliated by a white woman to know that black women are humiliated by women. (laughs) Right. Like I don't need that arc drawn out over six episodes. It's not a narrative I'm unaware of. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And I spotted that episode one. So I'm like, you know, uh, when it comes to content, I'm just like, we, we're having these conversations. It's important to be having them in public. It's important to be seeing all different representations of these conversations. Um, and specifically with friends, it bugs me a lot. But there are also elements of will and grace, which is an, which is like, uh, you know, a comp to friends in that it was happening at the same time. It does not get everything right. It's obviously much better with regard to queer stuff. It's not great with trans stuff either sometimes and certainly not great with race but you know I think it's important to engage with that content as long as we have the awareness and we're taking the lessons from it so that was a long way to say I agree (laughs) (laughs) I love that but you know as you were speaking it made me think in terms of casting and I wonder if this played a factor at that time because we really did have a lot of black representation with UPN and WB. Do you think that there might've been the mindset like, well, they're going to be on those shows. We don't need them on these shows. Like they kind of kept everything segregated for a reason. I really do believe it was just people reflecting their experience. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I have plenty of friends who have lived in New York city in the last decade after graduating from college and you know, the majority of their friends were white. I mean, I think it's impossible now to, um, to live in a major city and have no interaction with people of color. That's but, a choice. And I also, <laughs> I mean, your, it would yeah. have, it just ha- would have to be like, even the people there were, there were like service people around them in friends who were people of color occasionally, but like, even those people were white. Like it, I think it was more, a lack of awareness. Mm. I think they only had white friends, clearly. They were reflecting their experience. One of the creators, I believe, is gay. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even have gay people on the show. You know, so it's like... And there's I a lot of jokes of it, at gay people's expense, which is interesting, yes. yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, like, creators only have so much control over their show. They're making it within the context of this machine, Mm -hmm. you know, like, sure, we need to be trying our best as people who are telling stories, you know, to throw in a black person every now and then, you know, like that's the least they could have done. But I also see that um, it was not only was it something they didn't realize a weakness, uh, a muscle they hadn't developed. They also didn't have any executives or any, you know, like anyone on the other side who was pushing or being like, well, we need to have, you know, so I, I, you know, I don't know. I just sort of feel like there wasn't malintent necessarily, but if that's what your world looks like, then that's what you reflect. And then, yeah, we had such a segregated world and a segregated um, TV landscape. The fact that living single you know, isn't considered just as iconic as friends, you know, like it tells you a lot. Living single is better than friends. Yeah. Hot take. Love it. Um, I would watch living single over and over and over again. (laughs) 
<laughs> and a lot of what's funny is like a lot of my white friends did watch Living Single growing up because it was just so good mm-hmm. and they found it on UPN or whatever. And now it's on Hulu, I think. And a lot of them are watching and they're like, how have I never seen this show before? Yeah. How have I never, how did I never hear about this? Um, but yeah, that's exactly what we've been talking about. If there are only white people in decision-making spaces, so at the network, at the studio, white people writing it, white people in media writing about the shows that they're watching, white people in the offices talking about the shows that they're watching. Yeah. Like, you know, that's that's how the system was created. Yeah. And it's like, it keeps everyone out. Yeah. And so that's why like the cracks in the system, now you start to see things leaking through. That's my best, <laughs> my best theory. No, I, I love it. I love that. But one of the things also that I feel like I struggle with is people finding the balance of having representation versus having representation just for the sake of having it. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. you should just, like you said, plop a black person into the story. It's like, well, what, why? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, so for mm-hmm. you, how do you think the industry industry will get past that? Because I feel one that's performative, but also it's just kind of, you're checking a box and it's like, we're more than mm-hmm. just boxes. I mean, I think this is why we have to tell our own stories mm-hmm. because and this, these are the mental gymnastics that I see people doing, especially around White Lotus, because they're like, well, Mike White, this brilliant creator, and he truly is brilliant, and the show is amazing. Like, I will just go on record saying that. <laughs> like, two things can be true, right? Right, for sure. This is something that in having conversations with my white friends, they're like, well, so you don't like the show? And I'm like, no, I loved it. I really loved it. And there are no interesting characters <laughs> of color. <laughs> like, you know? Right, you're like, I can still be critical can, of it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they're both true. But one of the things they asked was like, what is he supposed to do? You know, he is telling a story from his experience and he is a brilliant storyteller and we do deserve and should get stories from him. Um, But like, what is the solve? And my hot take, I guess, is that I don't know that there is a solve Mm. for a white person telling stories about black people. You know, I don't know that there is a way that they're able to tell a story from a perspective that they haven't lived. And I think that's okay. I think the answer is you get a black person in your writer's room or you, or you center a black person in your narrative and have someone help you tell like, what are the propelling forces behind this person's existence? What are the things that are real? What are the things that are not, you know? And this again comes back to what we've been talking about before. We keep trying to find ways to keep white people in the center. Yeah. How do we how do we make it so that white people are able to tell stories about people of color? You know, like yeah. that's the question that we're asking ourselves. And we're like, well, what if we just had people of color tell stories about people of color okay. and anything else? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that is like the fundamental shift that we have to make in the way that we think about this. Um, but of course that's uncomfortable because as we said, it makes them feel like something's being taken from them or they're being pushed out. And in some ways, you know, there is in the sense that like, if they aren't the default person to tell the story, then, you know, maybe they don't get to make a TV show. Maybe they don't get to tell their story. Right. Why they wouldn't want to give that up. For sure. For sure. But in, in all that we're talking about, just in regards to acting, entertainment industry, the world, when it comes to your career, what is the one thing that really does fulfill you? Mm. Oh, um, I mean, the fact that I'm able to do it at all 
feels like such a gift, yeah. you know, it's funny because you look at, and, and maybe this is sort of what I'm prickling against when I'm talking about shows like White Lotus or, or any of the shows at this moment that feel div- diverse because they're either about white people talking about these things or they include a character of color. Um, with television, there's both the story that's being told, you know, the story that we see as viewers and we consume, and then there's all the logistics in terms of like the actual people who make that story. Mm-hmm. So the demographics of the people who are creating it, who are writing it, who are behind the camera, who are on the show. Um, and so what feels dangerous or insidious to me about a show that feels woke is that at the end of the day, how many char- how many people of color were employed by your show? Mm. How many white people were employed by your show? How many straight people? How many gay people? Like, what are the actual demographics? And content aside, how are those demographics different than any other show? And if looking at the data between two shows, regardless of what the content is about, if the top five people are all white, if the majority of the cast is white, if there are only people of color in token roles, then it doesn't matter if your show is about race and so and class and society. You didn't create opportunity for people of color. Mm-hmm. You only employed white people. You know, like, that's not different. That's the same thing. Right. And what's frustrating is, like, when it comes to building a career as uh, a creator, as an actor, as a queer actor, um... You can't be in a show if there isn't a role for you. Even if the world exists like, oh, well, I could totally see you in this world. You know, like, sure, a queer character of color could exist in the world that these creators have created. Yeah. But if he doesn't exist on the page first, if an, if a character description hasn't been written, a breakdown sent out to casting directors, there isn't going to be a queer character of color. Yeah. The world doesn't really exist. It's fiction. The only things that are in it are the things that we put in it, right? <laughs> right. So just because this is a world wherein queer characters of color could exist, that doesn't mean that there is opportunity for work on that show. Yeah. And I think... I now see that as a person who's, you know, I audition for things. I see the number of auditions that I get compared to my straight white actor friends, my gay white actor friends. And obviously it's a fraction. Um, But I compare what I get to what people got 10, 15 years ago. You know, like, how do you build a career as a gay black actor in the 80s? You know, like, you didn't. And some people did, some people did things here and there. Like, anyway, all that to say, I just feel so, in terms of fulfillment, I feel so grateful that I get to do anything at all, that I get to live off of the work that I've created and the work that I've done. The reason why I'm so, like, vocal about these things and critical about our industry is because I want to create more opportunity, not only for myself, but for the next people who are coming up Mm -hmm. you know I want to open up uh, you know we don't think about this industry in the context of like eating 
you know, but you have to work to eat. Exactly. You have to work to, yeah. to buy a house. Yeah. You have to work to build wealth. And so we don't think about the fact like, oh, well, I guess I haven't seen this person on television for five years or for seven years or for 10 years because I've seen other gay black people on TV or I've seen like, oh, he's popped up here and there. But like, how do you build a life on that? Yeah. And when our industry is still fundamentally geared towards um, certain types of people, specifically cisgendered straight white people who are able to build wealth and accumulate assets and we're meant to be grateful for like the scraps that we get. That's not equity. Mm-hmm. That's not parity. You know, that's not progress. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's sort of like the best way that I can describe it because my fulfillment and my gratitude, it comes with also the resentment or the like frustration of being a person who has been in this industry for multi- for over two decades now and who is still like you know I mean everyone's always scraping yeah. and clawing yeah. to get anything at every level um, comparatively you think you would be farther along it's just recognizing all of the other hurdles that I have to overcome that my uh, colleagues don't that my peers don't and um, that's fine I can carry that burden <laughs> we have been carrying those burdens Ooh, child. Yeah. forever <laughs> Um, but I hope I feel the fulfillment also in seeing younger actors, younger queer black actors who, are, you know, there are now gay black characters on screen who are 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, roles that wouldn't have existed at all. Yeah. Couldn't even imagine them yeah. when I was that age. Yeah. So just seeing that is so fulfilling. Oh, I love that. Clark, you, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> oh, but I'm so glad we got to chat for a little bit. I know. I know. Thanks for having oh, of me. Of course. Can you tell everybody where they can follow you and where they can listen to your podcast, Soul Bomb? Totally. I'm at Mr. Clark Moore on all platforms and you can get my podcast wherever you get podcasts. We're on a, we're on a bit of a hiatus. We're doing a very long European vacation for summer. Uh, but all of our shows are um, evergreen and people have been diving into them and I get DMs every day that people are binging our old episodes. So go binge away. Amazing. Go get some healing in your life. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure chatting Thank with you. Thank you for having you. me. Of course. And to the listeners, make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk if you haven't yet. And we'll talk to you again real soon. Bye. Bye.